It's not just radio, it's Rockland World Radio. RocklandWorldRadio.com All right, hello and welcome to another edition of New York Update. This is Jake Jacobs. I'm a New York City school teacher and I report on the news this week. America is in turmoil over the uh, shootings. We had Dayton, Ohio, and before that, El Paso. You're listening to a moment in time when the country is in disbelief at two consecutive shootings and something new is going on for the first time. It's pointing back to the, the language of the president in, in the country. Uh, we are going to go over some education headlines, as we do normally. But, yeah, there's a lot going on. Tomorrow, Trump is supposed to visit El Paso. A lot of uh, protesters are expected to be there because they do not approve of him being there. And the mayor, you have um, elected officials that are telling people if you don't like the president being there to show up. And, and let him know. I'm nowhere near El Paso. Uh, it's all the way at the bottom of Texas by the Mexican border. But I would consider going, if I could, to uh, have a sign of Trump's rhetoric around invasions of Mexicans, invasions of immigrants, definitely triggered these unstable people. You know, mental health problems is one issue, but the big issue is easy access to weapons of mass destru- destruction and we saw what happened. Um, El Paso was um, 20 people dead, and Dayton was 10 people dead, but 20 people injured. So, real travesty. So, let's get into education. I had two interesting uh, meetings yesterday, or sit-downs. One was with a congressional candidate, and that was pretty exciting. I'll talk about that at the end. The other was a meeting with a guy by the name of Michael Loeb, who is a New York City school teacher, but he's also the treasurer of Educators for Excellence, which is one of these groups, one of these groups. Now, you know, some of my friends are saying, you know, be on the lookout for E4E. You know, they're one of these reform groups. You know, they do take funding from Bill and Melinda Gates and all these philanthropists. I mean, I looked at the list of funders and there's like hundreds of names there. So, you know, hopefully it's somewhat diversified. If you look at their issues, it's not that bad. But I do know from years past that they have kind of been on the other side of the issues. Here at the show, we cover the debates over charter schools, high-stakes standardized tests, common core standards, privatization, school funding, yeshivas. And, you know, so that's why I took the meeting. I sat down. I was very pleasantly surprised. We didn't di- we didn't agree on much, but we had a very thoughtful discussion where we heard each other out and we got each other's positions. Educators for Excellence is a group that is seeking to enroll teachers as members. And they have chapters in uh, New York, Chicago, uh, I guess L.A., Philly, like all the big cities. But they came to my school once and they offered like these uh, a free lunch to all the teachers at lunchtime. They had big six-foot subs there and potato salad, coleslaw and everything. It was really nice. Um, but you had to like fill out this card in order to get it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so all the teachers did because teachers are starving usually. <laughs> And, you know, I filled out the card, I spoke to them, and the issues that they're taking on are not, are, honestly, they're not bad. They're not bad at all. They're, the issues that they're tackling right now in their current campaigns are desegregating public schools, ensuring fair funding for public schools, supporting the dreamers, supporting migrant children, right? Really all good stuff. 
But I remain suspicious because they're funded or, you know, their CEOs or CFOs or whatever are these guys. They're like the hedge fund guys, you know, McKinsey Group. And that's when you start getting into, you know, the privatizers. And you wonder, are these billionaire philanthropists funding this organization so that they can actually go out and do great things? Or are they just doing those things in order to get a lot of teachers signed up as members so then they can go around and lobby saying, look, we have like, you know, 40,000 members or we, you know, or we have 100,000 teachers on our you know, membership roles and, you know, and we were lobbying for charter schools or testing or whatever. They're currently not lobbying for any of those issues, not that you can see. But, but so, yeah, you know, I believe in meeting with the other side. And I found that there was actually a lot that we agreed on. Uh, Michael said that he was generally against charter schools and that he was he was aware of the cherry picking and he thought that was unfair. And so, you know, we just maybe disagreed over he thought that there should maybe should be some space for charter schools that serve high needs kids or that, that actually fulfill the mission that they're supposed to, you know, according to the law. Whereas I believe that there should just be no charter schools. That's I'm sorry, that's how I feel. I used to feel how he felt because in New York State law it says that charter schools are created in order to serve the at risk students. And if they did that, you know, it might not be so bad. But that's not what's happening, and it hasn't happened for quite some time. So, you know, we're just kind of disagreeing around the edges there. And we are going to meet again, I guess, at some point. So it was very interesting to talk to him. The other meeting I had was with Erica Vladimir, and I will talk about that after we get through these headlines, okay? Very interesting article is out. I just saw this today. And this really caught my eye. It is in the Huffington Post, and it is by Rebecca Klein, who's usually pretty good. You know, I'm very critical of education reporters, but Rebecca Klein, she's usually pretty good. The headline of this article is, Inside the NAACP's Civil War Over Charter Schools. And the subheading is, Leaders of the nation's oldest civil rights groups say that members are being paid by right-wing groups to infiltrate the organization and sow chaos. Now, where have I heard that before? <laughs> um, all right, so reading by Rebecca Klein. When three local NAACP branches in California passed April resolutions opposing the national group's call for a charter school moratorium, school choice advocates greeted the news with glee. School choice, of course, means pro-charter school and also pro-vouchers, religious school vouchers or private school vouchers. Reading, U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos voiced her support in an interview. The Wall Street Journal published a flattering editorial about the move, describing it as a welcome revolt. But leaders at the California State NAACP say this so-called revolt is fake news. They say the main member who pushed these actions, a woman named Christina Laster, is being paid by a right-wing group connected to the Koch brothers to infiltrate the organization and sow chaos. They also note that despite the media attention, these resolutions were dead on arrival at the national organization for failure to follow proper submission protocol or rejection by higher committees. In July, California leadership asked the NAACP, the national NAACP, to initiate an investigation into the three branches, Southwest Riverside, San Diego, and San Bernardino, and their leaders' motivations. Quote, it's definitely a funded and deliberate effort to try and do a hostile takeover, 
said Rick Callender, the second vice president for the California-Hawaii NAACP. Laster, on the other hand, denies the accusations and says she has been bullied by organizational leaders for simply expressing her opinion and representing the voice of local members. Quote, they felt I was creating division to make it seem like we were breaking away as an organization, but it wasn't that at all, Laster, education chair of the Southwest Riverside branch, told HuffPost. It was, quote, it was my desire to bring the for- to the forefront what works and what doesn't work. The NAACP, the nation's oldest civil rights organization, passed a national resolution in October 2016 calling for a moratorium on the expansion of charter schools. The resolution came out of the San Jose branch and made its way through multiple committees to get passed by national. The resolution was controversial at the time, but in some ways was a harbinger of new liberal resistance to charters, a type of public school that is privately operated. Since that time, charter schools, once a bipartisan cause, have faced more resistance. In California, legislators have introduced a series of bills designed to roll back the growth of charters, including a now-failed bill that called for a statewide moratorium. At the national level, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders has cited the NAACP's call for a moratorium when unveiling his own anti-charter education plan. Right from the start, the NAACP's stance was polarizing. About 26% of charter school students are black, and polls show that these schools are moderately popular among black, uh, among black Democrats. Excuse me. Then, in April, internal dissent was formalized when three California branches passed local resolutions opposing the national stance. Okay, then there's a picture here of Christina Laster. Laster became the face of this dissent, telling the L.A. School Report, By us coming out with the resolution, people can be aware that the moratorium is not helping our kids. Laster stayed in the press, even though the resolution from her branch languished, writing op-eds about her support for charter schools and getting quoted about NAACP issues. From the start, Laster's place of employment made her a source of suspicion. Laster works for the California Policy Center, a conservative think tank that's an affiliate of the State Policy Network. According to a 2012 report from the Center for Media and Democracy, the State Policy Network is a main driver of legislation created by ALEC, the pro-business American Legislative Exchange Council, and has deep ties to Charles and David Koch, the energy billionaires who spend vast sums of money to promote conservative causes and candidates. The California Policy Center is dedicated to pushing education reform with a focus on beating back the state's teachers' union. The group has been behind a number of lawsuits designed to hurt unions' bottom lines. Laster serves as president of the Inland Empire and San Diego Parent Union, a project of the organization. Callender believes that Laster was sent to join the NAACP by her employer to try and do a public relations hack job. But Laster said her employer didn't even know she was involved with the NAACP until she brought it up months into the job. Will Swaim, president of the California Policy Center, also insisted she was a member of the NAACP before she, quote, found us and dismissed the group's alleged allegation as a conspiracy theory. However, a January blog post on the center's website characterized Laster's school choice advocacy as the CPC teaming up with the NAACP. (laughs) The employment histories of members in other branches, too, have raised eyebrows. 
Kamal Martin, an officer in the San Diego branch, works for the California Charter Schools Association as a regional director, according to the organization's website. To NAACP leaders, this makes Martin's moves, motives dubious. He did not respond to requests for comment. Quote, these are the people on the payroll of charter school associations and the payroll of organizations that are trying to attack the greatest civil rights organization in the U.S., said Callender. But Laster has long been supportive of school choice. She homeschooled her now-adult children. Until recently, her youngest son and grandson attended district schools, but they faced a racist discipline, she said. She recently moved her grandson into a charter school, hopeful that it might serve him better. She has watched district schools fail black students for decades, she says, arguing how can anyone blame her for wanting better. She speculates that the NAACP is merely doing the bidding of the State Teachers Union, the California Teachers Association, and insinuates that NAACP leadership are the ones getting paid off, that they are the ones getting paid off. Joette Spencer Campbell, who was involved in the San Bernardino branch resolution, echoed the sentiment, telling HuffPost via email, that corrupt culture is why California state NAACP leadership is so quickly to falsely accuse their own branches of being paid off. Callender said he finds the accusations absurd, noting that the NAACP has connections to everybody, not just the union. I mean, it's pretty obvious that they do if, if uh, you know, the leader of their education group on um, one of these chapters is working for Charles and David Koch. Uh, you know, that sounds pretty diverse. Reading. The California Teachers Association did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Still, disagreements between Laster and state leaders have continually gotten ugly and spilled out into public. In a blog entry, Laster wrote for the Education Post, oh boy, those guys, in July, she made multiple accusations against the NAACP leaders. She said that they had sent her threatening letters and suspended her, her from her post as education chair, only to reinstate her when she pushed back. Most damningly, she claimed members were assigned to monitor her at a recent lobby day in Sacramento, and that these members even followed her into the bathroom. Callender says none of this is true and that her claims, especially that she was followed into the bathroom, sounds like a level of paranoia that is unreasonable and very strange. The bottom line is she is being paid to try and manipulate the NAACP and we are volunteers trying to do the right things for the community, he said. Now, Lasser is unsure of her future with the civil rights group. She attended the group's recent national convention but says she found it hostile and uncomfortable. Behind, besi behind the scenes, though, she says she has received silent support from members all over the country. Members of, quote, the older generation have come to me and said, Christina, you're doing the right thing. We're proud of you, said Laster. They tell me, keep going. We don't know what happened to our organization. Really interesting. Again, that was that article, if you want to check it out or share it, is called Inside the NAACP's Civil War Over Charter Schools. And thank you, Rebecca Klein, because that was good journalism, right? As you can see, she tried to contact everybody. She gave both sides. You didn't really see you know, a bias in the article itself. But, of course, you can make up your own mind because the facts speak for themselves. <laughs> So this was interesting. Era Lewis of the Daily News wrote a op-ed claiming, among other things, that charter schools outperform public schools. 
We called him to task on August 5th on Twitter because on our side, we don't swallow that standardized tests are valid to compare different populations. Charter schools obviously get their, their high test scores by stacking the deck. They get the families that have the most involved parents. They read to their children at night. They're present. They are, uh, by and large, more likely to be employed, more likely to be higher education themselves, less likely to be on public assistance, less likely to be involved in courts, involved in uh, incarceration, uh, social services, right? And, and, you know, the public schools are more likely to have those kids. So uh, this was because Eva Moskowitz, the CEO of Success Academy, had tweeted out that uh, Bill de Blasio was turning his back on black and Latino children. Now, we reported here that de Blasio made uh, some comments when he was at that in. EA Town Hall, NEA being the, the big teachers union, and de Blasio made some comments there, you know, running for president that he hasn't been making running the city as mayor. At that uh, town hall, he was asked about charter schools, and he said that he hates school privatizers, and he was acting like he's, you know, a total, totally against charter schools, and he's a warrior. In reality, you know, he might have started out that way, but he had his head handed to him by by uh, Governor Cuomo and by the, the state legislator, and he had you know been forced to compromise and give space to charter schools, give public school space over to charter schools, and to give them funding and to allow them to open up zombie charters. So you know, on the one hand, it's nice to see De Blasio sticking his neck out uh, against charters, but um, here, even Moskowitz is playing the race card and saying that by opposing her charters, her type of charter organization, that he's turning his back on black and Latino children. His hate for charters robs families of equity and educational excellence. If anyone should be angry, it's New Yorkers. Well, uh, Errol Lewis was backing up Eva Moskowitz. Errol Lewis is the, uh, he's the guy on New York One, the reporter, and he also writes for the Daily News, although this was an op-ed, not a, not a piece of journalism. So we called him out. He keeps saying charters outperform public schools. Charters outperform public schools. Charters in New York do get higher test scores than public schools, but it's not fair to say they outperform public schools because they have two different populations, right? And it's not a, it's not a valid measurement. So sorry, Errol Lewis. We asked him in the tweet, please write your next op-ed specifically on New York state laws against cherry-picking. Because wouldn't that be great if he finally acknowledged that that's how Success Academy gets those great high test scores that they have. This article. Now we're going to talk about the Gifted and Talented program. Um, If you're listening to this, you might have a Gifted and Talented program in your school or your school district where you live. But I'm going to be describing the Gifted and Talented program in New York City. Remember, AOC tweeted out recently that uh, one in every 300 Americans is a child sitting in a New York City classroom. That is how big you know, New York City schools are. But I really had no idea that this was going on. So this was written by Josh Greenman, who works at the Daily News. And he was you know, being very honest here in relaying his experience with his, with his four-year-old daughter. The article is called Thinking Through Gifted and Talented Education in New York City Public Schools, One Parent's Reflection on the System. 
his daughter went through the gifted and talented public school admissions gauntlet, what he calls. He believed in the gifted and talented system, but now he's questioning things. So here's how it works. Four-year-olds take a nationally normed standardized test. It's actually two tests, the NNAT and the OLSAT, which are supposed to measure reasoning ability and general intellectual aptitude. No bubble sheets. It's administered in person by an adult. Those above the 90th percentile qualify for district programs, right? That means in, in the New York City school district, they're, you know, which are huge, um, they will have, uh, e they'll either have a placement in a school or they will have special services that that child receives so they could get placed on an advanced track, okay? Those above the 97th percentile qualify for citywide programs. Now that means that the kids are extracted from their regular district schools and they're put in city school. They're put in the special, specialized schools, right? Maybe they call it magnet schools, but you know, they're obviously gifted and talented schools. Those are the technical qualification thresholds. In practice, you need a 99 to qualify for a citywide school and usually something like a 95 to qualify for a district-wide program, though it depends on the district. Once you get in the door as a kindergartner, you stay in the program through fifth grade in district programs or eighth grade in the case of citywide programs. So, so basically, you, you, you get retested after middle school uh, or um, going into high school. You know, uh, middle school ends at eighth grade, high school begins in ninth grade. <clears throat> okay, so a test taken on one day as a four-year-old, a test which your parents can prepare you for and can put you on track to do well at, um, can separate you from your peers for your entire, conceivably your entire K to 12 education. Okay, the citywide schools are coveted. They have excellent reputations and are, by most objective measures, very good schools. Of course they would be, as the only kids who get in uh, come through this intense filter, ensuring engaged parents and high test scores. They also, surprise, surprise, have few black and Latino students and fewer low-income kids than the citywide average. The district-wide programs, too, are often whiter than the neighborhood schools in which they reside. A system designed like this is knowably racially skewed and economically skewed. Okay, so he talks about predominantly white parts of the city, the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, Brooklyn Heights, Park Slope, and parts of Queens. Lots and lots of kids there take the test, and many of those kids prepare for it. That includes pricey tutoring, and you know, parents, uh, you know, that uh, that uh, kind of like you know, pre-teach the you know the kids, or they you know buy them, uh, you know, those learning machines or or uh, learning systems, you know, or they might put them in more of an academic-focused preschool or nursery school. Okay. Meanwhile, in other parts of the city, very few kids take the test, and f even fewer kids prepare. All right. So there, there are kids that don't even know about this test. Number one. Uh, combine that with differences in home life and you get deeply disparate participation and qualification along lines of class and skin color. In the well-off neighborhoods, there are way more kids qualifying than there are slots available. So that triggers a lottery to decide who gets the spots. In the poorer parts of the city, 
which are black and Latino, there are not even enough kids qualifying to meet the threshold for creating one class, right? Which would be about maybe 20, 25 kids. Uh, I don't know. I could be as, you know, could be as high as 30, but um, it's really hard to defend a system that uses a test administered to four-year-olds to determine the type of public education they receive. But it is important to understand that, you know, if you believe in specialized or accelerated instruction going to a subgroup of kids, you really need a method for identifying those kids. A test is a bad way, but it's possible that other ways are even worse, Josh Greenman argues. Okay, the test includes logic style games, basic math, and it's not designed to advantage kids who can already read. Um, if you're an immigrant, you, in theory, have an equal chance to register as gifted and talented using the screen, in theory. The biggest problem is that since it's a known assessment, parents and kids can, can prep for it or prepare for it. Um, so, you know, that gives an advantage to the parents who have the time and the money to get their children ready, right? And it disadvantages parents who might have a, a potentially gifted and talented kid but you know works three jobs or maybe has four or five kids you know or six or seven kids okay reading is letting pre-k teachers nominate kids a better way probably not that tends to advantage kids with nudgy parents or advanced verbal skills and or the tendency to raise their hands quickly i would also say as a teacher you know kids who tend to be the teacher's pet or you know that are always uh, on the teacher's mind you know, as opposed to quiet kids because the teachers just honestly forget about them. Is it better to wait a few years and use another test? For sure, he says pre-K is a really early time to try and identify giftedness and talent and then to proceed to teach kids in separate settings for years based on that, frozen in those categories. So I've heard a lot of complaints about that, is that, you know, maybe they should test every year you know, instead of just testing these kids in fourth, uh, at four years old and putting them on this track. So a really interesting article, you know, another suggestion is to give the assessment to every four-year-old in the city. Now, I don't know about that because, you know, obviously I'm against standardized testing and, you know, especially kids at that young level. So how do we do it, right? Um, you know, this is kind of like a rumination here without having any concrete suggestions, but it's a very interesting question. Should we have these programs wind up so racially and economically skewed? You know, should we reserve seats, you know, based on income? Should we uh, reserve seats based on race? Uh, I don't think that's even legal, but, you know, you, you know, if you do the income thing or, you, or if you do the geographic qualification, you can pretty much determine a much better racial balance. So, um, you know, really interesting article. I mean, you know, some people don't believe in gift and talented at all. Like, why dilute the class, right? So that means you're going to have one group that does better than usual, and you're going to have one group that does worse than usual, right? Is, isn't it better to just, you know, leave the kids all mixed in together? I know teachers that's, that disagree. Like, you know, if there are kids that can zoom ahead, why not put them in advanced coursework and, you know, put them on the fast track? So, you know, maybe maybe the answer is to keep, you know, the district programs but get rid of the citywide programs or maybe vice versa, right, to not do it so much, right? If New York City is such a big place, you can kind of skim off the top and not have it affect, you know, the whole rest of the system so bad. But, you know, in a small community, 
If you take those gifted and talented kids out at four years old, it's going to be a brain drain on the rest of the district. So, look, I'm happy as long as it's democratically decided and people are accountable. But, but you know, really good. It, it really gets to the question, you know, around segregation, around class, you know, division. And because certainly if we want to get towards more integrated classrooms, the time to start that is when the kids are little because, you know, they just think everything's normal, right? They don't even think about race. They just think about that's another kid across from me. So uh, just to finish with Josh Greenman, he, he would consider it a victory if eliminating the programs resulted in public schools represent the neighborhood, you know, more closely. He says, but his head hurts when he starts to think about how unfair the process is for plucking young kids out of general ed classrooms. It, how it uh, intensifies racial and ethnic segregation and income segregation and, ra- and related resentment and the negative effect of draining a small number of chosen kids who have intensely engaged parents with extra time and money on their hands for classrooms. Really interesting stuff. Do we really believe in diversity? Do we, and if we do, are we willing to put our money where their mouth is and send our kids into a program that is, you know, diverse? If it sounds you know hard, like oh you know white parents will never send their kid to a eighty percent black and Hispanic school, you know they're afraid that they'll get bullied or they're afraid they get beat up or all that. Well, you know if if you start in kindergarten, that's not going to happen, right? And if the cohort ages together, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. When I went to kindergarten, first grade in New York City, it was very racially integrated, and then when you get to like sixth and seventh grade, it's like woof, all the white kids disappeared, you know, and they go to the private schools like Dalton and Hackley and Fieldston and and all those kind of schools. Really interesting piece, and I was really happy to read that because I did not know some of that stuff. All right. New York State bans teachers and administrators from carrying firearms in school. So here is a law, and uh, let's see. This is on the... uh, the website of New York State Senator Todd Kaminsky, who is from Long Island. This was originally published in Newsday in July 31st, so that is about a week ago. From Albany, New York schools won't be allowed to arm teachers and administrators to combat mass shootings, according to a measure signed into law Wednesday by Governor Andrew M. Cuomo. It specifically prohibits firearms to be carried in schools by any teacher, any school administrators, or others who aren't licensed security guards or those who act primarily as school resource officers. Most school resource officers are police officers. Violating the law would be a class E felony punishable by two to five years in prison. While hundreds of districts across the country have decided to arm teachers in response to mass shootings in New York, we will not hear, said Senator Todd Kaminsky who co-sponsored the bill. Arming teachers with guns can only lead to additional tragedies. I don't know about only, but a very, very high likelihood. If you're a teacher, I don't know what states are doing this, honestly, but if you're a teacher and you go into a, a classroom with a gun strapped to your hip and the kids all see that, yeah, sure, you know, they'll be more compliant and obedient, especially in the lower grades, but in the higher grades, there's a resentment that comes out of that, right? Because there's, you know, there's already like a power hierarchy thing 
right? And some kids are just born rebels and some kids are made rebels. But, you know, it isn't hard for 30 kids to overpower one person, you know, whether or not they have a gun. And if they did that, right, you know, let's say you had like three kids uh, or even two kids that said, let's take this guy out, right? You get behind him and trip him. I'll grab the gun and you put him in a chokehold. I mean, that's it. That's That's all it takes, right? I mean, why would you bring a gun into the classroom? It's the craziest thing I've ever heard. So good for the legislature, you know, and good for Cuomo for signing this bill. Earlier this week, Cuomo signed into law a ban on bump stocks. Uh, which turn rifles and shotguns into rapid-fire weapons, and on the 3D printing of guns. Uh, Both of those measures were already banned federally. Cuomo also extended the potential time for federal background check in firearms purchases from three days to 30 days if the buyer isn't immediately cleared by the FBI. Of course, the National Rifle Association was upset about this. Tom King, the president of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association said, whatever the governor and legislature have done are not going to make the people of New York any safer. King also said the state shouldn't dictate policy about who can carry a firearm into schools. Somebody sitting in Albany or sitting in New York City has no idea what is needed or what the social mores are in these schools, King said. Again, this is the president of the New York Rifle Association. (laughs) He's saying that Somebody sitting in Albany or New York City has no idea what is needed. Yeah, some of these uh, people that are sitting up in Albany are former teachers. Let's see, Florida, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and Wyoming exempt school employees from bans on firearms in schools. So those are the states that do allow school staff to be armed. Idaho, Kansas, and Wyoming require school employees who are armed to obtain permits to carry weapons concealed from view. Missouri, Tennessee, Texas, and South Dakota require employees who carry firearms to complete training programs. That's good. Other states and school districts are considering arming employees under the theory that a good guy with a gun is the best way to stop a mass shooting. President Donald Trump has supported the value of the good guy with a gun theory, but not here in New York. On Wednesday, Cuomo also signed into law a measure to set standards for local gun buyback programs in which police pay to accept firearms. Gun buyback programs work, says Linda Rosenthal of Manhattan. Providing people with a no-questions-asked opportunity to turn their guns in has helped dramatically reduce the number of legal and illegal guns on our streets. So, teachers will not be armed in New York State. Based on the fact that these um, mass shootings have been happening... And also the fact that New York City uh, recently adopted CRE, or Culturally Responsive Education. It's very possible that uh, New York teachers are going to be instructed on how to deal with these school shootings and, uh, and talk to students about it. Many New York teachers now have advisory time with students, which is time set aside for social-emotional learning, mindfulness, body and or brain activities, etc. In my school, I do have a group of 7th grade boys uh, that I have to have an advisory 
period with every day. It's about 15 minutes long, except for Fridays where it's an hour. Uh, we are supposed to go over the morning announcements, have discussions. That's where some teachers like to do stretches, some teachers like to do yoga, some teachers like to do meditation, things like that. It's a great time for that. But it also does put teachers in the position of being counselors, right? And if we are being asked to talk about consequential issues that are happening in the news, like mass shootings, you know, like Hispanic people are getting mowed down in Walmart, by white supremacists, those are very touchy issues, right? And not necessarily the type of things that teachers are trained for. You know, obviously we do have experience uh, with children and we are trained for kids with special ed or disabilities or, you know, ELLs. There's a lot of extra stuff that we do. But, you know, basically our degrees are in instruction, delivering instruction. So this is another piece. Culturally responsive education is going to be very uh, interesting to see, you know, how it's unrolled this year. I did personally get some training in it last year, but that's only because I was in a special teacher effectiveness training group for our teachers where they kind of rolled it out last year. And it's good. It's a good curriculum. I think it should be going on more and more. And it's especially good for white teachers of, of minority students because it brings out things that, you know, you might not be aware of, even if you have the best intentions. And even if you're a, like, you know, you consider yourself a bleeding heart liberal and everything. We'll be on the lookout for that. Let's talk about that again as the year progresses. Um, school starts in September. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how the students respond. Hopefully there won't be any more mass shootings between now and September, but there very well could be. You know, we'll see how the district responds, whether they're going to have more of these intruder drills. I think they're horrible, uh, but we have to do them. You know, we for years have been having these uh, lockdown drills and code red and all these different things where, you know, we have to practice with the kids and we have to tell them, get away from the door, pile into the closet. I mean, this goes on. This We did this last year, you know, a couple times a year. We have to turn off all the lights, lock all the doors. You're not supposed to cover the windows, but you are supposed to hide so that if this mass shooter guy is coming down the hall and he looks in the window, he'll think, oh my God, this it, this whole school is just empty of kids for some reason, and I can't get into the, any of these classrooms, right? Now, you know, what happens, of course, if the mass shooter was themselves a student? And they know exactly how the lockdown drill works, right? Then all they have to do is start shooting right behind the wall where they know all the kids are hiding. Kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Mega billionaire complains of inequity. So this was uh, this piece. This was just a tweet that we tweeted out on August 3rd. And it says, a new TV ad campaign called That's a School Board Thing seeks school board candidates to rethink high schools and fight inequity. But the effort is funded by Lorene Powell Jobs, who is personally worth over $21 billion. We're gonna play the commercial for you, okay? I do my best when I feel safe and inspired to learn. I want my kids to have better opportunities than I have. I wish we had classes like the schools across town. I want to hold our elected officials accountable. School boards transform communities. Speak up at yours and make your voice heard. Text SCHOOL to 225568 to find out how you can get involved. We should have classes on how to be an entrepreneur. I want to make a difference in my community. 
Let's pay teachers like the professionals they are. We need to prepare students for the jobs of the future. School boards transform communities. Speak up at yours and make your voice heard. Text SCHOOL to 225568 to find out how you can get involved. That uh, was a commercial that was sponsored by a group called XQ Super Schools. And I was just watching the Met game the other day, and I saw this commercial, and I was like, oh, Jesus, here we go. XQ Super Schools is an organization that is funded by billionaire heiress Lorraine Powell Jobs. She was the one, when Steve Jobs died, inherited all the money from the Apple fortune and all of the stock from the Apple Corporation and all of the stock from Disney, because remember, Steve Jobs became a partner with Disney uh, when they created Pixar Studios. And right now, Lorraine Powell Jobs is the single biggest holder of Disney stock. Um, she's funding this organization called XQ Super Schools. They support charter schools, but they also support public schools, and they support rethinking education. So they have this commercial on there, which, as you heard, was telling people all the different ways that school boards are important, right? It was called, that's a school board thing. Like, oh, uh, how do I get uh, training for, um, you know, career and technical training? Well, that's a school board thing. Uh, you know, how do I deal with students, you know, that are, there's too many absent students in the school? Well, that's a school board thing. If you click through their website, what you find is it is a very, very heavy-handed approach at trying to talk to people and convince them to run for school board, but run specifically for school board on their issues. And some of the issues are, are fine, right? Like, you know, reducing uh, absenteeism is a, a very laudable goal. But some of the other things are it's just complete privatization. Now, Lorraine Powell Jobs was uh, the billionaire that was secretly setting up the billionaire roundtables during 2014 with the Hillary campaign. Although she uh, wasn't just doing it with Democrats, she was also on the board of Jeb Bush's group called the Foundation for Excellent Schools or something. I'm sorry, I, f I forget which one because Jeb Bush has two different education groups. But Lorraine Powell Jobs sat on the board of one of Jeb Bush's education reform groups. They're for privatization, they're for charter schools, they are also for um, online learning, personalized learning. Remember, if she's the uh, widow of the former CEO of Apple, they would love to get contracts to get Apple computers in every school. That's a huge contract. How about a contract to develop software, you know, for the entire state of California or, you know, something like that. So, you know, they want access to the kids. They want control. And they have been doing this not only, you know, above board, uh, like this, like this TV commercial, but also behind the scenes. You know, they, the only reason we know that Lorraine Powell Jobs was funding the Hillary campaign and having secret meetings about education policy is because we saw it in the WikiLeaks. And we know specifically that Lorraine Powell Jobs was asking for things like ending collective bargaining for teachers. She wanted uh, teachers to have to individually negotiate salary, you know, which is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, if every teacher got five minutes to negotiate salary, it would take something like, you know, 12,000 hours, <laughs> you know, for every teacher in the country to be, you know, to, to have that time to do it. So, you know, it just, it just completely ridiculous. And this is a new ad campaign. You might see it on TV. 
um, you might uh, see it on the web. Uh, it's called That's a School Board Thing uh, by XQ, and they are trying to recruit people, trying to plant people on school boards, and they are very specifically telling them what to advocate for and what issues you know to advocate for, how to do it, and people should all be on the lookout for that. So uh, that was our headlines for the week. Um, before we go, I am just going to chat about Erica Vladimir. Um, I sat with her and I interviewed her because I am writing an article about New York State legislators. And I do want to get their positions on charter schools, standardized testing, on the yeshivas, on school funding, etc. She impressed me as a very highly qualified legal mind. She was up on her education law. You know, it was very refreshing for me as a total nerd on education policy and, you know, the law and the history of it and privatization efforts to see somebody else that not only knew her stuff, but she also took very, very strong positions against charter schools against standardized testing and she's running for congress against carolyn maloney this is on the east side of manhattan and parts of brooklyn i believe greenpoint and williamsburg sections of brooklyn i am endorsing her right now carolyn maloney has is a pretty good and well-regarded democrat uh, she's been there for 30 years though and uh, some of her views are kind of centrist when it comes to things like charter schools, I looked it up, and she was previously for charter schools, but uh, now, today, she has scrubbed any mention of them from her website because of the uh, backlash. So I don't know if Erica Vladimir has a very good chance because uh, Carolyn Maloney is a powerful incumbent, and you know uh, she's a known quantity. Her name has been out there for a long time. But Erica Vladimir has her own story, too. She is, of course, the legislative counsel who was standing outside of a restaurant with New York State Senator Jeff Klein in Albany uh, one night after they, uh, a really late night where they passed a budget, and they were going outside for a cigarette break, and um, that's when she says Jeff Klein leaned in and jammed his tongue down her throat and it was and of course led to her being very disillusioned and forming a work group against sexual harassment in Albany. That work group ended up bearing fruit this past session when a package of reforms was passed into law and ironically um, the work group and the committee on uh, harassment and uh, actually it's the committee uh, Senate Ethics Committee uh, was chaired by Alessandra Biaggi, who is the female state senator that replaced Jeff Klein, that, that beat him in the election and took his seat. So Erica has her own story, too, but I was very impressed with her chops on education policy, education law, education funding. You know, she had been working behind the scenes for quite some time in, I forget the name of the office, but it was something like the Office of um, Budget and Finance or something. And, yeah, she really knew her stuff. So, um, but, um, you know, suffice it now to say that, you know, she has really strong progressive views on education, and she's going after, you know, an incumbent Democrat from the left to, uh, to try and improve schools here in New York. Okay, so that's it for this week. We will be back next Tuesday at 7 p.m. And if you want to tune in live, we're on live Tuesdays around 7 on rocklandworldradio.com. 
You could hear our archives anytime. Just go to nyupdate.org. And you could also catch us on Twitter at UpdateNY. It's the other way around. So, for another episode, this is Jake Jacobs signing off. Signing off. Signing off. Signing off.